Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of a brand new show here on Voice of Vashon called Focus On. Let me start by asking you a question. I'm wondering if you've ever sat there and thought, you know, I bet there's some people in the world who are doing things just a little bit better than we're doing them here at home. Maybe there's some great ideas on the other side of a national border that we could borrow or take away from. And if you've ever asked yourself that question, then you are in the right place at the right time, because that is exactly what this show is about. So today I'm talking with Vivian Toft, who is joining me from Sweden. Vivian, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. So for those of you who have not heard the show before, Focus On is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. on Sundays and 5 p.m. on Fridays here in the Seattle area on 101.9 FM, KVSH, or you can also stream it online and even sign up for my podcast at marchtwisdale.com. Um, to get us started, Vivian, how about you give our listeners a sense of who you are? Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a Brit. Uh, I moved to Sweden when me and my husband retired. We were teachers. And um, now we live in Sweden, in southern Sweden. And uh, my perspective on life, I mean, and the reason really why we moved to Sweden is that um, I really think it's important to live in an equal society. And as you know, Scandinavia is a much more equal society than, for example, the UK, where I was living. And so this was a few years ago, which means that it was pre-Brexit and um, Britain was essentially part of the EU. So for you guys, was the feeling sort of like an American would want to move from one state to another? It was fairly fluid and easy to um, make that transition? Absolutely. I mean, um, obviously, the, the countries of the EU are still in the process of harmonizing those sort of rules and regulations. So I think it was a little bit harder than it would be in America to move, say, from, I don't know, Texas to Montana. Mm -hmm. But um, it, is, it's, it was much easier than it used to be mm -hmm. uh, because we, we are now European citizens, so we, we have the right of free movement. I think that is really such an amazing freedom, and I think it's really fascinating and interesting that through Brexit – a significant number of people in Britain actually chose to give that up. Uh, yes, it's it's almost unbelievable. Um, I don't think the result was expected at all. But unfortunately, a few people like Farage, you've probably heard of him, played on uh, ideas of nationalism and um, xenophobia. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people voted out of, from fear of, inaccurate information you right. know how that goes. no no I, I'm an American I have no idea how that happens <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so yeah I know it's been fascinating actually getting to the age in my life where I'm able to recognize compared to being a child or a teenager or in my early 20s and and being able to recognize sort of that that back and forth swinging and swaying you know, between xenophobia and fear-angled rhetoric 
compared to the more hopeful and trusting rhetoric. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on out there. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. So that's the first thing we're going to talk about a little bit. I have a number of friends um, who live in the UK, and I've been tracking Brexit a bit. But I think there's a lot of people who just have seen it, you know, on the front page of a newspaper or here or there. They have a sense of it but a very, very, very small sense of what it means, what's going on. Can you, for us as a Brit, sort of um, frame it for us and give us a sense of what it meant, where where you came from or where you're going? Well, obviously, the idea of the European Union was to draw the countries that are involved into an ever closer union and to gradually harmonise Uh, things like tax and so on, to to make it easier for the free movement of goods and services and people. That's what people have been working on since just after the Second World War. And one of the ideas was to put a, a roof over the power of Germany. If Germany was going to be reunited, there was a feeling that it was important that it never became uh, overdominant again mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it was for everybody's benefit to uh, have a sort of a, a legal structure and so on. And also, of course, it's very important for trade to take away trade barriers. And the rest of Europe is is the UK's biggest trading partner. Right, right, right. So if we look at, um, so after World War One, which I believe was instigated by the Germans as well? Yes. Okay. So after World War One, you know, what was it? Something like eighteen percent of young men in Britain died in that war. Yes, it was a there was a very high death rate, and and right. of course it, at the same time there were the flu epidemics, and it, you mm-hmm. know it, it was catastrophic. So after World War One, we have the Treaty of Versailles, which is mm-hmm. often pointed to as one of the causes of World War Two because it just created a situation that it was almost like a, a punishment type of treaty. And it really drove Germany into um, ongoing economic stress, and that created the fear and the anger that could be harnessed by the Nazi party, in short. Absolutely. Okay. So after World War II, they're like, okay, we need to not repeat the mistake of the Treaty of Versailles. And so that's what you meant a minute ago when you said it was meant to be good for everyone, including the Germans, was this is not punitive. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and I mean, it started as an agreement between France and Germany, uh, mm. a trading agreement about coal and steel, but that it was always intended to become something much bigger. Yeah, it was just in Luxembourg this past mm. um, June. One of the interesting things, and I can't remember the name of the gentleman, but that's where I went into one of the official UN headquarters and was looking through some of the history and whatnot. And it's a it's a man who is from Luxembourg who was the one who recommended the um, steel and coal, coal right? Steel, right? I knew it was an energy source. This, so he recomm- he lived. He was born in the late eighteen hundreds. Lived through World War One and World War Two, and recommended that idea. And I thought it was specifically to prevent any nation from being able to combine those two forces of energy and weaponry again. Mm. What about the gun with the knotted, you know, you have a gun and then the the pointy part of the gun where the bullet would come out is tied in the knot. 
what do you know a little bit about the symbolism of that? Actually, um, I don't know anything about the symbolism. That is that something that's associated with the EU? With the UN, actually, yeah. I mean, oh, right, okay. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, okay, so I just figured, I was wondering if it was something that everyone was sort of aware of in the EU. But, yeah, it, that is supposedly the other side, like you said, of the UN is not just about trade, but also about making sure that no one ever turns their weapons against each other and that you don't have another war within European countries. Yeah, and it was as well as... Um... A general idea that we would all be partners in this uh, endeavor. The idea as well was to try and make sure that um, there are a lot of regional disputes, you'll be aware of that, like the Basque country in mm -hmm. Spain and Northern Ireland mm -hmm. and Gibraltar. So there were a lot of these regional disputes and the idea was that if it was all brought into one framework there would be fewer flashpoints like that and um, so as well as a general agreement that we wouldn't go to war again there would be this idea that there would be fewer reasons to go to war again mm -hmm. so um, as an EU citizen and as a Brit and I'm not sure Brexit hasn't fully happened yet so are you still technically an EU citizen I am and it's highly likely that we that we'll be able to remain EU citizens. That that is the first thing that has to be sorted out. Although Theresa May's government doesn't seem to believe that um, the the status of people like us living in Sweden and people uh, EU citizens living in the UK has to be sorted out first. And it's highly likely that we'll retain EU citizenship. As it, well as being offered citizenship where we live. That Yeah, I think that's very hopeful, and I think that would be great. It does seem a little bit remarkable, the idea that Britain as a, as a governing body would be able to withdraw, which means that they would be sort of um, free to take or ignore what they wanted to with regard to their relationships with the EU, and yet to then also want their citizens to retain those lovely rights of freedom of movement. Do you really think that the European Union countries are going to support something so um, liberal and forgiving? Well, Norway has a relationship like that. But it, although it works out quite well for Norway in some ways, it means that Norway has to follow all the rules of the EU, but they don't get to set any of the rules. Mm. They don't have any say in it at all. And also, of course, it, it, it would mean for the UK that we would have to renegotiate trade deals unilaterally. Mm. Right. So at the moment, there's a, there's a US-EU trade deal. We would have to do our own and so on. So I can see the complexities. So tell us, yeah. um, what are your impressions, obviously, since most of the people you know are probably former, you know, are Brits from you know, your many years of living there. What were sort of the top three reasons given by those who were promoting Brexit? What's the, um, what's the mindset of the people who voted yes? One thing was that they didn't want, they, they were worried that a lot of uh, citizens from poorer Eastern European countries would rush over to the UK. So they were frightened about that. Um, although there's, there's very little evidence that that would have happened. 
some of them believed that EU citizens were just coming to the UK to use the National Health Service, which is also quite ridiculous. Um, one amusing reason I heard, a teenage girl was saying she just got the right to vote and she voted to leave because she said she thought it would put an end to football on television. Hmm. Well, I mean, I could actually, I could agree with her on, on, on that goal. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, people. Okay, football's fine. I grew up watching the Super Bowl every year with my dad. It was the only football we watched, but yes, that's hilarious. Okay, probably she meant that as a joke. Let's hope she meant that as a joke. She was deadly serious. <laughs> okay, so age, age of voting. How, how old do you have to be in um, Britain and the EU roughly to vote? 18. 18, so it is 18. Okay, I thought there was one country, or I'd heard of a place where you, they maybe they wanted 16-year-olds to be able to vote. Uh, yeah, I think Jeremy Corbyn has asked to lower the age again to 16. Interesting. Yeah. All right, okay, so you were talking about Theresa May. Is that the name I got correct? Yes. Yes, yes, okay. Um, most people in America probably have not heard that name a ton or don't quite understand it, so tell us a little bit about... Um, this person, because this person seems to be having some effect. Well, she's um, a conservative person, so she would align with probably, say, Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. as a kind of, uh, of, you know, where she stands politically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, she was the Home Secretary first, which I th I'm not sure you have what your equivalent of that is. But she was in charge of things like the law and prisons and hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, her husband was, is, um, someone who runs private prisons. In Britain? So, yeah, so it was somewhat of a conflict of interest at the time. Uh-huh. Um, and now she's become prime minister, but she doesn't seem to be very successful at it. Let's so she's she's married to and professionally deeply invested in the the movement towards private prisons, and Absolutely. with that as her deep background, she's now leading your country. Yes, wonderful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So okay, so that's <laughs> uh, that's some interesting stuff going on there in Brexit, um, and in Britain, and so mm. My mother keeps talking about this transitionary period. So it sounds like they're not going to do another referendum and attempt to reverse the decision. It sounds like they're going to just go forward and try to be as, as soft with the Brexit as possible. Is that your sense? Uh, I think that's the, that's the prevailing mood amongst a lot of people. But there is a very strong, I mean, more more people now want to reverse the decision than don't. The majority now want to stay in. As they start paying attention to what's actually going to happen. Absolutely. The more facts start to come out. Right. You know, the, business, the business people and the banks think it will be a disastrous thing to happen. So and as that starts, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I'm sorry. So in other words, it sounds like people so didn't think it was going to happen that they didn't really give it the attention it needed. And then when it happened, there's a bunch of, oh my gosh, now we have to get out there and inform people and really pay attention to the repercussions and whoa. So it sounds like that's sort of what happened. Yes. And so there's a, there's a feeling that if 
I mean, at the moment, Corbyn is, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, is caught a little bit because if he were to say, well, I'm against Brexit, uh, that might damage his chances of um, in the next election. Hmm. So he isn't, he's saying, well, we'll abide by the referendum. But there's this growing feeling that if he were to say, when it's all negotiated, we'll have another vote. Mm-hmm. Now that we have the details, now we'll let you all decide, do you like these details? Yeah. Do you actually want yeah. it the way it is? Oh, that's yeah. actually a pretty good strategy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Okay, so... We live in hope. We live in hope. We do live in hope. So um, Focus On is a show designed to bring the voices, thoughts, and insights of just normal, everyday, common people from northern European countries at this time to my American audience because so many people who live in America um, do not have the opportunity to get across the Atlantic and go actually interface one-on-one and have those human-to-human conversations with people who are living in successful socialist democracies. So what we tend to do is hear a lot about what your life is like from talking heads who want to, you know, inform us Americans about what it's like over there. And this is my chance to bring authentic voices and we get to hear from people who are actually living there. So um, there's more reasons why I invited you on the show other than the fact that you're simply a Brit living in Sweden. And part of that has to do with this really cool thing that's going on. So basically, for those of you who are out there listening right now, you probably have a sense that people in America care about what's happening in America. But it turns out that people in Europe also are paying a lot of attention to what's going on over here. Um, why don't you go ahead and we'll talk about St. Bernhard Lives in a minute. Why don't you go ahead and, um, like you were saying earlier in our pre-chat, explain a bit about why people in the EU would really care very much about what's happening over here over the last couple of years. Well, I think it, we understand very clearly that the U.S. is um, a very dominant country, especially since the changes in the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, China is also going to be very important. Um, but the U.S. actually only represents 5% of the world population. So there's an awful lot of people who uh, care about and are impacted by who you have as president. Mm -hmm. And we always hope that you will have, you will choose the brightest and the best. So over the last um, almost well year and a half or so, there was a lot of people who got really excited about Bernie Sanders running for president or to become the candidate of the Democratic Party. And so why don't you tell us a little bit, I mean, that year was... I think for many of us, a pretty emotional is the wrong word because it suggests like people are breaking down or something. It's more like it was a highly interesting, grab your attention um, type of experience. What was it like being in the EU while we were going through our primary and uh, we had Bernie Sanders out there talking about what he was discussing with you know, Clinton and then you had, of course, the people in the Republican Party as well as Trump, what was it like being on your side of the water and watching all that go down? 
I think the at first there was a sense of, oh, my God, they're doing it again and it'll be all over the news for another two years, you know. <laughs> uh, but then I, I heard Bernie on a, on a Swedish newscast saying that he thought the right to free health care derived from people being human beings. And I was absolutely astonished to hear an American speak in those terms. And I think that's the sort of impact that it had on many, many Europeans, that, that here was somebody who spoke as we speak mm -hmm. and who had the, the concerns that we have and the ideas politically that, that are commonplace, as you'll know, in, in the EU. Right. Bernie's ideas are absolutely normal here. They're not at all radical extreme right right it's, it's everybody else who's um a little bit out of step you might say right 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 i was in iceland about a month after i'd had a three-day stay in the hospital and um okay. so i was talking with a woman who asked about you know at one point when we discussed it she says oh well you know how much is that going to cost you you know you, you live in america you're in the hospital for three days antibiotics you know for a, an animal bite and she's like and i'm like well you know it'll be probably about fifteen thousand dollars for the three days and then i said but i'm very lucky that i have really good insurance so i'm only going to probably end up paying about fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred dollars and she's her like jaw, you know, hit the table. And I'm, to me, that's normal. And she was just shocked. And I said, why? W what would you expect to pay? And she says, I don't know, like maybe $45. And, um, and that's what happens over and over. And this is why, once again, why I started the show is, you know, like you said, these ideas that everyone can go and get medical care when they need it and not have to pay an arm and a leg and get a second mortgage on their home and tell their kids, sorry, you can't go to college because I can't afford it. Oh, and by the way, we're, we're downsizing because we lost the house. You know, for you guys, this is just normal. Um, yeah. 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 Nobody, nobody goes bankrupt in Europe over medical bills. And right. uh, it's bad enough being ill, isn't it? To think, to imagine having to try and negotiate i mean when you're already upset and worried to have to spend your time negotiating with an insurance company mm -hmm. as to what is going to be covered and so on it's just unimaginable to us right so um tell us a little bit about saint bernhard lives because there's you know Sure. Some folks, actually, what I'm going to do is first the station identification, and then we'll come back to that because there's paying attention and there's paying attention to the point where you actually start sort of this awesome writing movement that's going on, on in the Facebook world. So I want to talk all about that. But first, everybody, I want to make sure you know who you're listening to if you just joined us. So my name's March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of Focus On. And today I'm having a great time talking with Vivian Toft who is a Brit living in Sweden. Um, before we return to the interview, I'd like to give a shout out to those who support Voice of Vashon programming. Support for this program comes from Island Escrow, Vashon's only independent escrow company providing comprehensive service for all types of real estate transactions since 1979. You can reach them at 206-463-3137. 
Um, support also comes from Northwest School of Animal Massage. NWSAM has something for every animal lover. Literally workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage. This can be for professional certification or to take special care of beloved pets. More information at nwsam.com. Okie doke. So back to our interview. Tell us about how St. Bernhard Lives came to be, and then how about you read one of your favorites for us? Okay, well... um... You know, a lot of people talked a lot on social media mm-hmm. um, during the primaries. And I wanted to write about one particular thing, but I knew Bernie would call it campaign gossip. <laughs> so, so I thought I would write it as a fairy story. And once I wrote that, it was never intended to, to be more than that one chapter. Once I wrote it, I found that the genre fitted the entirely unbelievable procession of events that I was watching in the primaries mm-hmm. and and sadly friends encouraged me as well so that's why I got going on that. Why is that sad that your friends were encouraging you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know I've, I've, <laughs> I feel it you know it, it might have been better if they'd said okay that's enough now. <laughs> I don't think so okay so which one are you going to read for us first? Okay, well, I thought I'd start with the beginning of the first chapter. Sure. Which, as I say, was never intended to be more than that. Okay. Chapter one, the spell. Wait, wait, say that one, again. The what? The spell. Spell. Okay, got it. Once upon a time, in a land not far away from many of us, lived a people both exceptionally blessed and exceptionally cursed. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? Ah, optimists say, well, this land was the richest in the history of lands, flowing with milk and honey and iPods. On the other hand, all new income and wealth flowed only in one direction, to the top one-tenth of one percent. Yes, as in all fairy stories, this land was an oligarchy, with kings and queens and obscenely wealthy courtiers. The general population was not much outraged about this. They looked on their rulers and shrugged. To be so wealthy and powerful, they must know something, was the consensus. Now this land, like any other, had a rich culture which included an ancient myth that the style of government was democratic. Naturally, the royal court wouldn't allow real democracy, but they provided voting machines and a regular pageant of choosing to entertain the people. They ensured that the voting machines were enchanted in the right way. So one day it was time to choose a queen. A carnival of deception was arranged. Token opponents were selected. To make it more fun, real opponents were even permitted, as long as they were obviously hopeless. The people shrugged and shuffled to their TV screens for their dutiful role as the entertained. But it happened that one day... A strange, rather scruffy old man, not one of us in many ways, hadn't got the memo or something and actually believed that this was a real democratic contest to be decided by the candidates putting their cases fairly and squarely before the people. 
So to the annoyance of the ludicrously rich few, this crazy old loon, who was called St Bernhard of the Northern Kingdom, stomped all over the country, and I forgot to mention that it was a rather large country, telling the people about their lives. Oh my God, I love it, I love it, I love it. Oh wow, that's that's really, really interesting what happens when you fairy tale reality. So, wow, I love it. And, and um, what type of reaction did you get to that? To that chapter, well, people really, people really liked it. And of course, they, everybody asked me, what happens next? Mm. Which... Because you, you were putting that out there while you were still in the middle. We were still in the middle of the primaries. Yes? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and... it was about a year ago. It was just after the convention I, I wrote it. Oh, no, no, wait. You mean like after the DNC had already chosen Hillary? Yes. So I was I was okay. trying to sort of catch up with – I was outraged, yeah. as so many people were, you know, and I was trying to catch up with what had happened and how did we get to that point. Okay, okay, yeah, so well, yeah, you encapsulated so brilliantly with so few words and such, you just really, that, those are like the the heart issues of what happened during that fascinating year. Wow. Okay, and since then you have uh, continued with St. Bernhard Lives, which if people out there want to, they can check it out on Facebook, um, and what is your hope? and goal with this um, literary adventure of yours? Well, um, after a while, uh, because I just used to send the chapters out, you know, I didn't keep them collected anywhere. Mm -hmm. After a while, somebody said, you should put them on a blog. Mm. So I did that. And um, then I started the Facebook page so that, again, they were all, all collected easily into one place. Mm -hmm. And then it, after I'd done about 40 chapters, I began to think, well, you know, there's actually a book here. <laughs> and people, people were saying, you must turn this into a book. You must turn this into a book. So uh, that's, that's a, a long-term goal. And I have a friend uh, who's called Bertie Williams, who's a, a very talented artist, and she's doing... Um, uh, unique illustrations for it because obviously on Facebook I just use illustrations um, from you know the data hand mm -hmm. mm -hmm. alright okay Whew. yeah so I'm, I'm a little curious if you do turn into a book would you be tempted to go in and edit all of them slightly or would you leave them <laughs> as they had been written for the, the historical um uh, uh, exactness. Accuracy. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, I think largely I would leave them as they are. There's maybe you're always editing, aren't you? You've never finished editing, right? Until it's print, print settles it, right, right. But, yeah. But yes, I think I would mostly leave my impressions as they as they were, and I mean that chapter was a catch up. That was a, that's what's happened now. Right. But after that, I started to want to make it less campaign gossip and more to address the issues. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of the chapters uh, were issue um, focused. 
Yeah, yeah. The the one that you recently sent out that I saw this past week was definitely issue focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, which let's go ahead and um, while we're on this subject, do you have one? or maybe two more that you want to share? I don't know if you have one from November 2016. Um, well, <laughs> or January one. 2017. I'm trying to think of the hot-button moments where the whole world just groaned and rolled over and started to cry. <laughs> well, I, I do I do have the one that I did for um, the end of the, uh, the, the inauguration. Oh, yes. You know, I was there... there. I was, yeah, go ahead and look for it. I was in D.C. um, for the inauguration in January. I wanted my 15-year-old son to um, be able to really directly engage with the end results of what can happen during an election season. And uh, so we were there, and this is an interesting story that I'll tell real quick while you're, I can, I can see you on the video and you're looking through your papers. So um, what was interesting is that we were there for about eight days because my grandfather is still alive and kicking. He's very healthy in his mid-90s, and um, he wow. lives very close to D.C. So we were able to spend a week visiting him and then also take the um, metro into the city. And what was interesting mm-hmm. is that where he lives, when we, we would drive over and hop on a metro, and that was the farthest out point. So it's the end of the metro line is next to my granddad's house. And so every morning we'd get there, and there's like hardly no one there, you know, because you're at the farthest out point. And we would just walk on. There'd be like 20 people that would get on the metro with us. And then there'd be about 12 stops until you got to downtown D.C., with more and more people getting on as you went. And on the day of the inauguration... Um, we had gotten tickets to the inauguration from our, our new senator, Pramila Jayapal's office, and I wanted to see the types of people who were actually there to celebrate this particular president being um, sworn in. You know, what was the energy like? Who was there? You know, what were their feelings and thoughts? I'm always trying to understand different viewpoints. And so we, we drive there and we get on the tram with, you know, 20 people or so, and we get into... DC and you know basically it was sort of um it was a Friday I think and um you know just a normal day sort of dead not a lot of people around except the actual inauguration place there were people clustered there okay and there was a couple of marches that were going on that stuff was happening so we're there we experience I won't go into detail we go home the next day was the women's march So we show up, we're driving to this last point of the metro, and we start noticing there's people all over the street. They're all walking about the same direction, and some of them are carrying signs. By the time we got to the metro station, there's no room for any cars. This is a building that has like five-level parking lot and had been almost empty every day the past three days. It's full. People are driving out of it faster than they're driving into it with their waving at us saying, there's no space. So we go park, you know, like a couple blocks away, we walk in, and there are literally thousands of people who are standing in line, these lines that sort of snake back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, waiting to get on this metro. We had friends that were near the front of the lines, we were able to join them, but it was like a three-hour line. And by the time we got down there and we crammed onto the tram, it got to the point where everyone just stopped getting on because there wasn't any more room. 
And so you would get on and you're at the first stop and you're already full. And by the time you get to the next stop and the next stop, like maybe a couple people would cram in and then pretty soon the doors would open and everyone would just look at each other and no one would get on. No one was getting off and the doors would close because there was no more room. We were literally sardined together. I wasn't even holding on to anything. I had bodies pressed up against me from every side holding me up. And, um, and that was the day of the Women's March, which was, you know, over half a million people strong. So uh, that was a pretty interesting experience that day. So that's what we went through. Now, how about you tell us what your thoughts were and, and read that, that St. Bernhard okay. lives for us. Okay. Um, chapter 30 was called A Tale of Three Speeches. St. Bernhard finds some closure. I'll just read a, a few extracts from it. Sure. In the land where the opportunity to sleep under bridges was available to rich and poor alike, the day had come for the citizens to kneel in obedience to their new dragon overlord. St. Bernhard was not about to let the people go through that alone. They would know that where they knelt in the mud, he had knelt before them and as deeply. But before he and his beautiful Irish princess set out across the capital, he wanted to record a message to the land, and indeed to the rest of the world, to keep their collective chins up. What do they want to hear, he wondered aloud. What do you want to hear, replied his princess gently, and he smiled at her wisdom. This will be a difficult day, he said to his phone on its selfie stick. We will fight back determinedly and effectively. We have to keep our eye on the prize of a government of justice for all. This is our destiny. We are not giving up. The speech was as calm, reasoned and hopeful as a Guardian editorial, a kind of breakfast table side chat, presidential in fact. He posted it to his facepalm site and they set out with only onerous protection to walk willingly into the dragon's den. Yeah. Okay. Can, I, can I read the, the last bit? Absolutely, absolutely. So pretty much no one got what they wanted that day, least of all the people. Indeed, St Bernard and his princess were mobbed at the airport by citizens shouting, it should have been you, babe, which increased his sense of guilt. And his beautiful Irish princess grieved at his distress. But as is their habit, things did improve, for some of our characters at least. It happened that weekend that a vast woman's march was planned for participants around the world. Naturally, such a huge event attracted a mixture of people with a mixture of motivations. It was a march for all reasons. While St Bernard and his princess made their way to the state capital of the Northern Kingdom, to participate as ordinary marches on behalf of the government of justice. As usual, when he was at home, St Bernard found that he could turn his passion up to 11. He delivered a short, fiery speech in which he warned Drumpf that he'd made a terrible mistake in trying to divide up the people, that they had come too far to be cheated by bigotry and that they were not going back, that Drumpf's bigotry and ugliness were uniting the people in a progressive movement. And then he added that the people would see through Trump's dragon promises. And then St Bernard and his beautiful Irish princess marched out, surrounded by 10,000 of their fellows from the Northern Kingdom, 
and knowing that millions more were marching with them around the world. He felt them close around him and he marched, lost in the crowd. A profound sense of contentment overwhelmed him. Millions of people discovering their own courage and resources, rising up against the oppression of the elite and determined to create a better world. I'm so glad that you ended that one on a hopeful note because that was such a hard day for so many. Not everyone. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing is, the thing we need to remember is that people who, there's, a, there's this very, very false belief out there that's being heavily promoted by various factions, which is that people who voted for Trump were bigoted, racist, ignorant. I mean, come up with basically your favorite bad word about a human being, and that's what's being labeled onto all of these millions, what is it, 40-some-odd million Americans. And yet the reality is, and it's being brought about, I, I think Bernie Sanders did some great work to help um, shine the light of reality upon these people, is that many people who voted for Trump were voting for actually very good, authentic, um, and important human reasons. They are people who, over the past eight years, really found that they were not served well by the Democratic Party's um, uh, power in D.C., and that things were getting worse instead of better. And I think when you're fearful that your children or your ailing parents or you are literally going to, you know, be just fall off the edge, fall through the cracks. You become vulnerable to um, people who will promise, I'm going to make it better. Trust me. You know, I'm not going to go into the details, but things are going to be better because you deserve better. And um, so I always remind myself that there are, I personally know people who, um, were not willing to support the establishment and they were either going to vote green or they were going to vote for Trump because they saw him as an outlier. The one thing he shared with Bernie Sanders was he did not appear to be a, a member of the establishment. Of course, he's a member of the oligarchy, so, you know, duh, whereas Bernie Sanders is not. But um, I think we need to remember that human beings are our allies and we should care for them and want to work with them. And that includes people who voted for Trump because they simply wanted to believe that there was, um, you know, that he could do what he was promising he could do. Yes, yes. Um, what, um, what, in one of my chapters, I said that uh, St. Bernard believed that being born into poverty is being is like being cradled on the ledge of hell. It's fascinating to me when I talk to someone who has had a comfortable life um, and has been born into luck, so to speak, and who will then be capable of actually not understanding the long-term effects of true poverty on their fellow people. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were, if you were raised in an abusive home where, you know, one parent was beaten up on the other parent on a daily basis 
and later in your adult life you said that affected me that I was scared every day of my life people would nod their head and say we understand or if you were born into a home where mom was a heroin addict and dad was a drug dealer and you know all sorts of scary stuff was going on all the time and the police were showing up and you were in and out of foster homes and as an adult you said that impacted me people would say yeah yeah I get it but you don't have to have those types of dramatic things going on for the pure misery of sheer poverty to actually also cause a lifelong effect. That's right. Uh, I mean, uh, people say, don't they, that if you can't join in um, to what everyone else is doing, if you couldn't, if you can't possibly have a, a vacation or you can't possibly go to a a fast food restaurant where you can't possibly even go to an entertainment park or something. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is a grinding um, poverty that it, it distances you from the rest of uh, the culture and it makes you feel like an outsider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, as you know, I live on Vashon Island. And we have about 10,000 people on the island. It's a beautiful place, and there's really great people here. And um, what I did not understand the first few years that I was here was that when you have money on Vashon, when you always have some extra spare cash in your pocket or your purse, um, you can always find somewhere to be on Vashon. You can get into a cafe with your kids and say, oh, come on, guys, let's, you know, let's relax here for a while. It's cold. It's December. Let's go to this nice warm cafe. And you buy your $15 worth of drinks and treats. And you sit down for an hour or two. And then you say, okay, and you move on. When you always have money in your pocket, that's what Vashon feels like. You can always go into the bookstore. You can always go into the grocery. You can always go to the gym because you have a gym membership. You know, you can do these things. But what I came to understand later when my children became friends with some really beautiful, wonderful people who I adore, um, but who do not always have extra money in their pockets, it opened my eyes to the fact that except for the public library, there's nowhere else on this island where you can go for free. Yeah, so if wow. you're a kid growing up, there's no community center on this island. Mm -hmm. Everything costs money. So if you're a kid or an adult and you're struggling and you don't have ready cash in your pocket, you move through this island and it's like you're in the middle. There's six months of cold, you know, weather around here. Yeah. And you can't join all those middle class and upper class people who are relaxing in their, their warm environments. You're stuck at home or you're out in your car somewhere or, you know, at a friend's house, but you can't go and engage on the community level because it costs money everywhere. Yeah. And unless you have friends who don't have money in their pocket at all times, or unless that happens to you, you won't even know it. Like Vashon will just yeah. feel so comfortable and you'll, you'll miss that whole demographic of people because they're not even out there because they, they couldn't afford to come in. So you don't even see them when you're out there. They're invisible. Yeah, exactly. So we are, we're going to get low on time here. We had a, a little bit of a longer list, although I love everything we've covered. But let's see if there's something really cool we've missed. Um, well, I don't know. Actually, we've covered a lot of it. So I, I would like to touch in your thoughts about the experience of living in a socialist democracy. Um, because I believe Britain is 
semi-socialist democracy, and then Sweden is more strongly, you know, in that direction. So, you know, in America, the talking heads, the promotion machine works really hard to convince people that all of Europe is a nanny state and capitalism is dead and everything's controlled by the government and you don't get to have any personal choice and you're taxed too much and people are lazy because everything's given to them. That's basically what we're told. So why don't you tell us what your thoughts are um, about that part of the world? Well, um, most of Europe is is what we call a mixed economy. That is to say, some uh, things that are thought of as strategic are run by the state, but uh, all the countries are actually capitalist. And um, the UK is no exception to that. The UK was much more strongly socialist immediately after the Second World War. And they were addressing the kind of issues that you in the US are beginning to address now. Uh, the idea of uh, the poverty, poor people not being able to go to the doctor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not having universal state education after 11 and so on. So uh, the UK did take a very strong move towards socialism immediately after the war, but it remained a mixed economy. Uh, capitalism was still alive and well. But under Margaret Thatcher, you've perhaps heard of her. Uh-huh, um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, under her, they um, they moved to um, roll back a lot of those ideas. And the UK became much more strongly, um, uh, it followed the US form of capitalism, which, as you know, is, is it's, it, they call it a market driven, but it isn't really because the market of course is rigged mm-hmm. for the big players right so that that's what it was like in the uk and um we really wanted to if possible to spend our retirement somewhere like where we'd grown up you mm. know in a much more socialist environment because we wanted greater to experience greater equality so when we moved to sweden those were the sorts of things that we noticed particularly because in the uk um, people obsess constantly and for good reason about money and status. Those are the big things. And when you come to Sweden, I don't know if that's true in the US. <laughs> when you get to Sweden, there's um, the there just is not that emphasis at all. People just don't care about what your status is. They don't care about um, how big your house is, you know, anything like that. And um, instead, there's a really big obsession with the environment and with um, the green economy. Right, 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 right. You know, it's interesting in my travels in Europe, what I've noticed um, is really interesting about the architecture is that the the old world um, structures, the way, how do I say, like the architectural landscape that existed as the world moved into the age of oil was so strong in Europe, even after the war had blown a bunch of stuff up, that it was sort of like you were either going to have to devastate and destroy a bunch of your history in order to clear the the slate and then produce, you know, a car-oriented society 
like we did in the U.S., or you were going to have to do something different in order to maintain the past. And so what I love about Europe is all of the open plazas that are everywhere and that even the suburban neighborhoods, the bottom layer is almost always like a business layer. You have the intermingling of business and residential. And so like every corner of every huge building that has like a bunch of apartments upstairs where people live, downstairs you've got the cafe and you've got the restaurant and you've got the bike shop or whatever. And so you get this sense that the out of doors, the neighborhood area is everyone's shared living room. It just feels like that is your living room. And it's so accessible and so yours and theirs and ours. Whereas in America, you've got the residential and the business very separate. So you leave your home and you travel to town and in town, no one lives there. Everyone's just there to shop or to work. And so of course it doesn't feel like a living room because no one's actually really relaxing. Everyone is there to do their business and then they're going to go home to relax and the homes are isolated or, you know, so I'm wondering um, where you live in Sweden right now. How is it? Well, very much so in Sweden, because there's a a law here, which we would call in the UK, we'd call it the right to row, which in Sweden is called Almans right. And it is that there is no real law of trespass here. So uh, there are no private roads or private beaches and even um, fields, if they're not planted with crops or if they don't have animals in, you can uh, walk across them. Mm. if you want and so all of the outdoors is public domain Mm -hmm. and um, many many gardens don't even have um, fences many people don't have fences around their gardens that is the traditional Swedish way it you may grow a hedge around your house but that's for a windbreak Mm -hmm. but you will have no barrier between you and the road very very often Oh, that's fascinating, given how fence-oriented America is. Um, Really. And the fields here, if they're arable crops, they're completely unfenced. Interesting. And do you have a lot of squares, and do the restaurants have their tables and umbrellas outside and all that? Absolutely, especially during – I've mentioned to you that the um, we have very warm summers. Yes. But if you go into town, there are a lot of restaurants, and it's very normal to have tables on the – pavement mm-hmm. extremely normal it's an al fresco kind of life the, the coast is very close to us and there are a lot of lakes in sweden hmm. so it, it's very easy to sit in a you know outside of a restaurant and be looking at the sea or at a lake and watch people go by and, and talk to people as they go by when you get out of america and you go somewhere else you learn about somewhere else but you also learn so much about America. You see your own country more clearly. And you mentioned squares. A lot of the towns, like we're close to a town called Ustad, which you may have seen on, um, it's famous in a, in a crime series. And they, have a, they still have the traditional square in the centre, and many towns do. Our local city, Simrisham, still has the town centre, and there'll be um, a food market there, there'll be... Events will be held there. Any time you're walking through the town, there might be a brass band or a choir. Mm -hmm. um, And people will just stop and take part in that. Right, right. 
Well, unfortunately, we are basically at the end of our hour. See how fast it goes? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to have to say goodbye. So, um, Vivian, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. And I, I always learn a lot. Yeah, and well, me too, me too. Thank you for reading um, a couple of your favorite St. Bernhard Lives um, little vignettes or episodes. Folks, I want to make sure you know how to find Vivian. You can go to Facebook and you can search for St. Bernhard Lives. Now, let me tell you how to spell that. Saint is with an S-T, period. Bernhard is B-U-R-N to burn, right? And then hard is H-A-R-D and then lives. Where else would people go? You mentioned a blog. Uh, yes. Let me just find. Oh, yes. it's uh, The blog is called, uh, with no gaps, it's called The Saga of St. Bernhard. No gaps or punctuation in that. Then dot blogspot.com. I love blogspot. I love blogspot. Okay, so The Saga of St. Bernhard dot blogspot dot com okay great 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 and if they went to find you on facebook they could go ahead and um ask you to remind them of that if they ran into trouble okay good okay folks so i mean there's a whole and and this is ongoing series you you just released one last week so you're basically you're tracking and paying attention to this ordeal adventure that we're all going through and then you're converting it into this lyric um series Absolutely. That, that is my aim. Yes. <laughs> and I do try to be absolutely honest. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Alrighty. So that's our show, folks. Um, I hope that, like me, Focus On and my other show, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, uh, will allow you to contemplate new ideas and ask more creative questions about what is possible in the world. Together, what can we do is the question we need to be asking ourselves. Um, Right now, I'd like to throw out a big, giant thank you to Windermere Vashon for their generosity has given me the opportunity to create this show. Thanks a lot, guys. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Vivian Toft here on Focus On, where my guests share how they hope to see the world change for the better, one shared idea at a time.